Welcome to Nothing Makes Perfect, a podcast about practice. I'm Jeremy, and in today's episode, I spoke with Aaron Martin. He's a teacher of soft acrobatics out in Europe, and he'll tell you all about that practice and how he shares it with people of all levels. But I just wanted to mention one thing that I thought made this conversation really cool. We didn't just go question, answer, question, answer. Instead, we grappled with ideas in real time. So we would each ask each other questions, we'd bring our own experiences, and really try to figure things out together. I'm picturing it as like a skill learning sandbox, and we both just got in there and played with the ideas and saw what came out of it. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Thank you so much for being here. I know you just uh, went through some travel. You were getting over some sickness. I really appreciate uh, your time and I can't wait to get started. I'm super excited to talk to you, Jeremy, mostly because I know you as the skill acquisition guy. And of course, in learning acrobatics and trying to teach it well, I know that you have a lot of knowledge that's sort of still hidden underneath the Instagram posts. And yeah, I'm excited (laughs) for the conversation. Awesome. Yeah, just to kind of like catch the rest of the world up if people end up listening to this. We haven't met in person. This is our first time connecting live, um, but we've been bouncing ideas around about this for the past few weeks. And honestly, like our little WhatsApp exchanges are so fun and interesting to me. I'm like, I look forward, I get a, a new audio message and I'm like, oh, sweet. What are we talking about now? Yeah, it feels very similar to me. Like, even though we don't know each other, I think it was similar to when I first started parkour and I knew I could crash on someone's couch just because they were into parkour and I didn't know anything else about them. It feels a little bit like that where we're trying to understand how how teaching movement skills works, but really how skill learning in general works. And it's still such an evolving field. And at least I can say of myself that I'm an expert in it, but I would like to become one over time. Totally. And I love that you said the the couch thing. Like that reminds me of going to juggling festivals and you're just like instantly friends with people because they juggle. So like, of course, yeah, we're just going to hang out, sleep on the couch. We'll go grab food together. Exactly. Um, so let's just put it out there. At some point, I'm sure we'll come across each other in out in the real world and we'll <laughs> look forward to that when it happens. Mm. So you mentioned acrobatics. Obviously, that's uh, that's what we'll be digging into. But I do want to ask a bit where where you came from so soft acrobatics is a term we'll definitely be getting into but i've seen you talk about how it kind of combines all these different disciplines gymnastics parkour break dancing etc i'm sure i'm leaving out a ton but what was your entry into this whole kind of acrobatic world my first ever entry must have been being inspired by jackie chan and just watching his movies growing up but at that point i was i still had the belief that You'd either have to um, be born into a circus family or be put into gymnastic classes against your will when you're like three years old in order to yep. do what he was doing. <laughs> and then when I was 16 years old and a friend of mine told me that there was a parkour sort of group in Frankfurt, uh, which turned out to be Team Ashigaru. And like one of the members is Jason, Jason Paul. He's been doing great things with Team Farang. And I was really lucky to sort of be really at the uh, almost at the birth point of a, sort of the greater parkour movement here in Frankfurt. Um, and that's my starting place. When I was 16, I did my first ever backflip, spotted by two lads I barely knew uh, in a sandpit <laughs> with a hard concrete ad- edge sticking out of it. And um, it wow. sort of worked, more or less. I, in the beginning, 
it worked less, but then more. And <laughs> that's how I sort of got into the whole thing. Awesome. And so I've seen a lot of impressive feats. You know, I've seen all kinds of Instagram videos. You're you're flipping, you're rolling. And it's not just like, it's not just a high level acrobatic skill. It's that you make things flow really nicely and you make it look almost effortless, which I'm sure it isn't. But I have like a very limited acrobatic background and it was kind of the opposite experience for the most part. It was like, here's this really technical skill. I'm going to like brace and, you know, grimace and whatever, and I'm going to hope it works. And then it either does or it doesn't. And then over time, I kind of was able to add a little more softness to it. So can you talk about the term soft acro? Like, could we get a working definition of that? Absolutely. Um, soft acrobatics is a floor-based acrobatic discipline with focus on sustainable movements, on sustainable soft execution. That's sort of the thing that I came up with in my journal a couple of years ago. Really, I think the term soft acrobatic just puts a qualitative term in front of what we know acrobatics is. It's sort of the thing where people stand on one hand and do incredible feats. It's a little bit like aggressive inline skating tells you mm. roughly what the scene is going to be like that you get into. And for me, soft acrobatics, it's a term that I'd first heard about or have first seen in a Facebook post on Ido Portal's Facebook yep. um, page. That's where I think it popped up. I Googled at some point. It's the I think the earliest term on Google was in 2013, Ido Portal speaking about soft acrobatics. And later on, I think Odelia named it microbatics. And then there's like different branches. And he didn't use the term since. But for me, journaling out what it is that I wanted to do, soft acrobatics was the most fitting description. I want to be able to move in acrobatic ways because that's my passion. I like challenging myself. I like feats that require all strength, flexibility, and coordination that are, you know, that make you feel like you're coming alive where you don't need a lot of stuff. But I don't want to do it giving up health, my own health to a certain extent. And it was really fitting because I'd lived the life of a performer doing parkour performances, doing some stunts, doing some commercial work um, in Germany and then later in Singapore. And there I felt like I was sacrificing my body in part because I didn't know how to do acrobatics well. I was self-taught. So mm -hmm. then it got me into the train of, well, I really like doing this, but I sort of am not good at it at least not good to the point where I could keep doing it for 20 years and be completely well off because I already had like little back tweaks when I was 21 and like sleeping in a soft hotel bed. I'm like, I can barely walk. This isn't good. I'm supposed to do somersaults on stage in like two hours. What do I do? And that led me down the road of looking, what's a, a sustainable way of practicing acrobatics? And here we are. I like doing cartwheels, <laughs> not so fancy stuff, a little bit of handstands, sometimes backflips but always with a focus on soft execution. Very nice. I want to pull the curtain back a bit. Um, my background is in circus and at high levels of circus training, like I remember vividly going to audition at a circus school and seeing the acrobats and it was like, there's one student on crutches and there was one sitting in the corner watching their friends. And there's a real cost to this training and there's a real risk. Like, We, we look at these skills and we're like, oh my gosh, that's so dangerous and high flying and whatever. But it's actually true, right? Like there are real people doing <laughs> real things that involve risk. 
And this kind of softness is a really nice way to, I don't want to say combat that, but like to, to work with it in a sustainable way. So I find mm -hmm. that super interesting. And I think that's kind of where we can maybe uh, relate a little bit. Like I can't, I don't know what it's like to throw a double twisting backflip, but I know what it's like to want to roll around and not have it hurt. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because you mentioned the word risk in relationship to acrobatic performance, um, I want to input this phrase quickly. Um, there's risk and there's danger. And mm -hmm. risk is the description of the possibility of something going wrong. High risk means there's a high likelihood of something not working how I intend to be, uh, how I intend it to be. But the risk could be equivalent in juggling. There's a high risk of a ball dropping if I don't know how to juggle. That doesn't mean yeah. there's danger. And that distinction of understanding I can practice things that have high risk, that's actually quite rewarding to practice with uncertainty, but that are not necessarily dangerous, that always stuck in mind with me. Um, just to give credit here for a second, uh, that teacher's name in, uh, in Singapore is Kai Real. And if you're in Singapore and you're looking for a really good teacher, look for werewolves movement. You'll find them. Like, the great pedagogy. But does that make sense to you? Do you like the distinction between danger and risk? Totally. In terms that I use somewhat often, I think of it as defining success. So, for instance, you could do a skill that has a high likelihood of failure where you maybe you're jumping off of something tall or you're doing some sort of flip onto a mat maybe and mm. you could define success as landing it in a certain way but failure doesn't have to mean like landing on your head right it could be i want to land on my feet but if something doesn't quite go as planned i'll roll out of it mm -hmm. right and that might be considered failure in quotes by you at that moment even if mm -hmm. it looks like a total success to someone else because it's not what you're aiming for and I think there we find a really interesting distinction between performance athletes versus people who practice for themselves. Usually mm -hmm. we're getting excited when there's real danger involved. Like I want to see the NASCAR drivers because I know they could <laughs> crash. I'm, you know, I'm not particularly interested in it, but I want to see the circus athlete performing incredible feats because I know he might actually die if he does something wrong. And if he's doing the entire routine, but he's on straps, then it's still impressive, but it's not the same thrill. Now, in my own personal practice at home for my life, like I, for some reason, I always knew that I want to be a dad. That's just something that's in my mind. I want to be, you know, take that kind of responsibility on. And, and for me, that also means I don't actually want to put myself in very dangerous situations. So mm -hmm. how can I still get that benefit of the thrill of the excitement, which then has more to do with getting myself in somewhat risky situations, meaning exposing myself to the chance of failure not narrowly defining success that it has to go perfectly, but rather looking at where can I playfully experience failure? Yes, I love that. So in your, in your bio, you say coaching adults to learn soft acro skills safely. And like each one of those words, we could spend an hour defining, but I feel like we've already kind of gotten a good glimpse of what that means to you. So you're talking about adults. We're not throwing that three-year-old into a gymnastics class with you. Adults who presumably have not been training acrobatics their whole lives. Safely mm. is that really interesting word. Like you're talking about exposing to failure. You're talking about risk, but intentionally and mindfully kind of avoiding or at least being aware of danger. Mm. So let's kind of put ourselves in the shoes of a beginner adult who first like stumbles onto your work and is like, whoa, that looks interesting. 
I don't know if I can do it, but I want to ask him a question about it. Mm-hmm. What is the type of project that someone might come to you as a beginner to try to learn? Mm-hmm. The first thing as a beginner that interests me as a coach is what's your interest? Where, what are you drawn to? If someone comes to me and saying, I sort of want to learn from you, the first thing I always want to know is, well, what gets you excited? And I mm-hmm. always find that someone has preferences and they might not be experienced in using the terms that I use, but they know, is it like more being on the ground and rolling? Is it like being in that sort of almost slower layer and things feel really soft? They look effortless. They also look like that's something I can do in my living room easily. And it has that just that feeling, sensing aspect of it. Or they'll say, look, this cartwheeling type thing, that thing over there, and then I'm like, is it a helicopter or is it a forward cartwheel? We get more specific on the terminology. Um, Or sometimes people will say, well, of course, I want to do the backhand spring. Or sometimes people call, um, just find their own ways of describing the move. But they always have, if they talk to me, they always have a point of interest. And that's where from there onwards, when there is that point, um, then we can like continue talking about how we make that happen. And I sort of have my, my uh, pathways outlined and it's about being versatile and so on and setting the right foundation. That being said, I'm, I would be really interested to talk to you for a moment about that sense of interest in something that draws me to the sport. And let me frame it just maybe in one more sentence to give it a more of a, um, a boundary of what, what we could move in. I have always been really hesitant to tell people that soft aqua is the greatest thing in the world because it <laughs> might not be for Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. And it would be super cool if they were interested in it. But if there's not that interest part in it, I've, I have no interest in convincing anyone to do something they're not inspired by, they're not drawn to. So where, like, how do you position yourself in that regard? You're a teacher, you have to sell yourself or offer your services. And do you find that you have to convince people or or is that a place that you like going in? And maybe I'm just not skilled at doing that well. (laughs) Yeah, where are you at with that? Honestly, I try to do as little convincing of anything as possible. I feel like I could basically chart my trajectory as a coach as from high convincing and then gradually letting go of all convincing. Um, (laughs) Juggling is the perfect example. There's research on juggling being good for your brain. Like teach Mm -hmm. someone to juggle for three months and you'll see changes in their brain. Mm. And so some people will say like, sign up for my juggling course because of neuroplasticity. (laughs) Right? Right. And I'm like... I guess if that gets someone into juggling and they find joy in it, that's awesome. But Mm. the finding joy in it is the important part. So like you said, if someone's already interested, they already have that kind of spark, then we're there. And if they don't, yeah, yeah, Mm. it's, I don't need to, (laughs) I don't need to like sell juggling as a concept in that way. I find more so even in my own practice, but I also see it in my students. Once they have the interest, once they have the spark, the the reason they stick with it is often tied to having a good explanation for why they keep doing it. Why why do I come, keep coming back to it? 
Mm-hmm. And then someone might say, I actually feel the neuroplasticity like when I work and it's that weird tingling sensation. You know, I'm making up a story now, but it is like yeah. those things that I find we tell ourselves about why we do the thing. And if that's a cohesive story and it fits well into my life, then I'm pretty sure I'll stick with it. Just like for me, soft acrobatics is my way of making sure that one, I have got um, a continuous trajectory of improvement and progress. But that isn't so linear. Like, for example, if I was a very narrow-minded parkour athlete and my only goal was to do large jumps, then I would have a single metric, which is what's the biggest jump I can do. And I, I would know that due to the linear nature of it, probably I'd run into a wall at some point. And now if I'm a paid long jumper, I, I'm okay running into the wall and getting over it. But again, that's performance. It's related more to sacrificial practice. But if I'm now practicing for myself in soft acro, then I can say whenever I run into the wall, all I do is I look at a neighboring category of skill that progress mm. comes more easily at. So for me, it's this whole thing of soft acro means I'll be healthy, well, and be able to move into my, in my body for the next 30 years. And the vehicle might change. The movement will change. But sort of the, the uh, underlying idea of why I practice is like I, I want to feel great in my body. I want to move well. I want to enjoy moving as well. It's, it's always been something that works for me. But the initial thing is just the interest, right? It's just, ah, I, it's, I'm drawn to it. <laughs> I love it. I describe this as staircases. So there's this idea in any sort of skill-related world of a progression, right? Like, I want to be able to do a handstand. What's the progression? I want to be able to do a backflip. What's the progression? And a progression I think of as a staircase, which is fine. It is totally great to have steps to get to where you want to go. That's awesome. But there isn't just one staircase. Like it can get really frustrating when you look at the staircase and you're like, I'm on step two and there are 12 steps and I can't, I've been at step two for a year, right? But if you look left or right or even behind you or underneath you, you find all these other staircases and you're kind of talking about setting up your whole practice to like infinitely find lots and lots of staircases, hopefully for the rest of your life or for as long as you can. I would love to dive into that for a second because it's so similar in my experience. I've been playing with this larger metaphor of the skill forest. The skill forest Mm. are all the different skills I might learn in my life. My goal is to get the fruit that's at the peak of the tree. It's sort of the hardest thing I can think of that I still want to be really able to do. So in some way, I'm climbing the trees and I'm using, for me, skill ladders. That's the thing that gets me up there. And that's very familiar, right? We've got the different steps that just get us up there. And then one thing I keep saying to my student is, in an ideal world, a single ladder would get us to the top of the tree, but that's almost never the case. So we got to learn what are the different skill ladders and when do I switch them? So that for any one skill, I know there's a multitude of ways where we either change the environment, we change the props that we use, or we change the task, the angles, literally the goal of the move, or we change the performer. So myself and my abilities, maybe I become stronger or more flexible, then I can start to shift and change the skill ladders. So then with a single skill, let's say I want to do an aerial, a no-hand cartwheel, Mm -hmm. I know there are certain root shapes that maybe you can go into later at some point that I'll probably like to practice because they'll set me up well. Then I start to climb the first skill ladder. And then I got to learn how to measure progress because how do I know that I achieved step two? It's not always obvious. And sometimes there's, uh, if the gap is too large, 
all that we need to do is add two or three rungs, which just means we need to have a different measurement system. So for something like uh, an aerial, the jump would be to go from a cartwheel to a no-hand cartwheel, but the obvious middle step is to do a one-arm cartwheel. Mm -hmm. But now the larger truth is that single skill ladder, just going from a regular cartwheel to a no-hand cartwheel, has dozens of steps in between where I could actually go to a narrow cartwheel first. And then I can do a variation where I grip my own arm, which suddenly adds this weird constraint that feels totally different, maybe not even more effective, but then I'll be I'll know more about how to do cartwheels even when I'm on a wonky one-arm support. That is one skill adder. So if that sort of leaves me hanging, then I could approach the aerial from a completely different angle. Um, for example, I call this the mini aerial. Like, can you imagine doing a cartwheel where essentially you do a slow motion mini cartwheel, like um, uh, like a, uh, just in capoeira, the, the mini variations where you sort of walk your feet around your hands. I could do the yep. same so not, thing. your legs aren't going over the top, but kind of out in front of you? Yeah, exactly. Thank you for okay. laying it out. So if I think about the mini cartwheel, and the mini cartwheel has... Uh, similarities to the aerial, then I could try to do a mini cartwheel without hands. What does that look like? It essentially just means I'm walking in a circle while I stare at the ground, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and from there, I could then uh, work my way up to making a little hop. So now we're on a different skill ladder, right? Because it doesn't look like a regular cartwheel anymore. Instead, I'm bent halfway through, sort of hinging from the hip, and my head is upside down, but my feet are right side up. So from here, I can then work to making smaller and eventually gradually bigger hops with the feet. And that would be the case of switching skill ladders. And eventually, I'm high enough, high up enough that I can pluck the fruit, the aerial, the, the golden trophy. I know I've <laughs> climbed the skill tree. And then really my practice is the skill forest that I'm, um, that I'm discovering. I love the skill forest. I will definitely be stealing it and hopefully giving you credit for it in the future please do you don't even need to give credit <laughs> <laughs> this is how i know we're best friends i have also described a ladder that's like missing rungs and then inserting extra rungs there and i want to connect it to what you said earlier about that kind of first step when someone comes to you is the interest and the joy and you know that that initial spark I feel like when you show someone a new ladder or show someone a new rung on their existing ladder, you're enabling them to keep practicing and holding on to that initial spark. It's like the spark can very easily turn into frustration. So it's not that you're giving them the fruit at the top. It's that you're allowing them to hold on to their spark and they can keep going up the ladder if they choose to and they can keep pursuing that fruit but with their spark intact. This is so beautiful. And it comes down to the very root of, of joy, I think, at, at least to a, in some level. Let me try to explain this a little bit deeper from what I'm currently experiencing as I'm listening to you. And I'm, I had like a little light bulb go off. Um, I found that, of course, I have genuine personal interests. They're probably related to my talents or to, in general, just what I feel drawn to. And it's pretty hard to explain where that actually comes from. <laughs> right. um, um, but what I've noticed for myself, and, and maybe the people listening can relate, is that there have been a lot of different things in my life that I thought I didn't like until like, someone gave me a good instruction 
And I started to understand that I just didn't understand the thing. I didn't know how to cook the omelet. I didn't know how to yes. create an Excel spreadsheet to list my expenses that would actually give me a good overview of um, how my how my expenses and my income streams look like. And the moment I do that, and I sort of, someone just taught me in such an easy and understandable way that it can give me tremendous peace of mind and calm to have that. Now for me, I'm still, you know, there are still personality traits and you'll find me more often flowing in the park than doing Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> but there's something about learning a skill in that's inherently um, creating a sense of joy that I think is super dependent on the teacher and the way we're being taught, not on the skill. Yeah, I love that. I think it it reminds me of my friend Joel, Joel Mullen, who I'll have to have on here at some point. But he talked about working with a coach as like inviting someone onto your shoulder. Like you have a, a devil and an angel on your shoulder. You can have a coach on your shoulder and you work with them to develop the understanding of how they see problems. And so oh, something beautiful. like mm -hmm. I can totally relate with cooking, right? I just always told myself like, I'm not good at cooking. I don't cook. I'm not a cook or whatever. And it wasn't until honestly like dating my partner and I was like, I have someone who I can ask the ridiculous questions to. I can like, exactly. I don't have to be embarrassed. I don't have to like make up this big story about the skill. I can just actually like touch the skill directly. And as it turns out, there's a lot of really interesting stuff involved, but I didn't stumble onto it myself. And sometimes you do, right? Like with juggling, I just kind of found it and it was awesome and I kept exploring it. With cooking, mm. I never had that moment. So getting someone onto my shoulder was like, oh, now I have a way of approaching this thing. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question and maybe we'll go a little bit off track, but then you just guide us back on track. Um, the question <laughs> is, what do you think is the importance of games that, well, skills that we develop by ourselves versus in the group? And maybe to frame that a little bit more, I've experienced that there's... Um, I've experienced a certain bias to describe how games in partnership are really important. And at the same time, in my experience, there are a lot of skills that I just need in my regular day-to-day -day life being by myself that, of course, I want to learn from good people or engage with good people in the learning process. But at the end of the day, a lot of the learning happens for myself. Um, what's your view on sort of learning things by yourself clearly juggling is something you know you can just do in your room but is mm -hmm. there like in juggling like some people say no you really have to do partner juggling otherwise you're not a real juggler or something <laughs> okay great question in first i'll start with the juggling there is passing and stealing and interacting in various ways with the partner and honestly as a performer in my past that was like my meat and potatoes i, I performed with a partner also named jeremy of course <laughs> um, and we were interested in these patterns where like you, one person's juggling clubs and the other person takes one and hands them a different one. And, um, they're called takeouts. So definitely there can be a lot of interaction, but my comfort zone, my bias is like a room by myself where I can kind of safely tinker with the puzzle. And when mm. I say safely, I mean, for me, social situations can present a lot of, let's say, lack of safety. So mm. if I, for instance, am performing juggling, 
immediately there's all kinds of anxiety and fear and puts a lot of pressure mm. on it. Um, and same thing with other skills. But when I can kind of, it feels like a laboratory to me. Like I get mm. in a quiet space by myself and I can tinker with the thing in the way that I want to. So I wrote about this to my mailing list recently, protecting your practice, right? Like if I want to learn to cook, knowing myself, I'm going to need to feel safe messing up, Mm. right? And for me, that means not being laughed at by another person. And Mm. for someone else, that could mean something totally different, but some putting some thought into like, what will allow me to learn in my way? And again, for Mm. me, that often means Mm -hmm. alone. For someone else, it could be exactly the opposite. It could be, this is really boring on my own, but when I get together with other people, it becomes fun. And then Mm. I can have fun making mistakes. So Mm. ultimately, I think it comes down to how can I do something over and over again and be allowed to make mistakes and learn from them? But for different people, that'll look really different. Mm. What will allow me to learn in my own way? That's, um, for me, a theme that has been showing up more and more what will allow me to heal in my own way what will allow me to show up successfully in in my partnership in my own way Uh, what will allow me to be um, a son in my own way or Mm -hmm. a father one day and and these are these are um, I feel simple frameworks tend to not work well with that perspective If the framework is too simple, then the question is, how can I see myself in that? I don't think of myself as a very unidimensional person. So if someone tells me, really, there are only introverted and extroverted people in the world and partners always need to either both be introverted or either both be extroverted, (laughs) otherwise they'll frustrate each other. Like that's not very wholesome. That's not very descriptive of me either because sometimes I can be really introverted, but then like you're recording a podcast. Of course, it's a conversation that we have in between the two of us. But in generally, you're putting yourself out there like that in itself. I hope I'm not um, uh, making you more self-conscious by (laughs) (laughs) immediate panic attack. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, now I'm totally out. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think that we've talked about ladders and now we're talking about like the individual nature of it. And Both are true, right? There are things Mm. about practices that apply, let's say at least in quotes universally, like pretty broadly. Mm -hmm. And then there's always the individual approaching them. So Mm. in like the literature about skill acquisition, this would be the individual is kind of taking on a task within an environment. And Mm. those three pieces are always like elements of whatever practice you're talking about. Mm. So the individual is going to come with their own experiences their own skills their own psychology and all these things and Mm. then there are still ways we can talk about it like if you teach acrobatics for 50 years you know some things about acrobatics regardless of who's approaching them so -hmm. i think that that balance of like structure and flexibility it that's Mm. where i always come back to you know there needs to be enough structure enough of a ladder or many ladders but then also Mm. if there isn't flexibility in the approach then mm. there's no room for the individual, like you were saying, with mm. introversion and extroversion or any mm. any example you could bring up. Mm. That um, brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you. 
Um, Turning the tables big time today. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel there's so much that can happen in a conversation that it's just exciting to talk to you, honestly. (laughs) So when you're speaking about structure... All day. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I could do this all day. Bring it on. Um, Structure essentially is... Um, it's the framework, right? It's the hard pillars. It's having the boundary of the soccer playing field so that we don't just run off and it turns into a race instead of a soccer match. Like, that's very <laughs> useful. The a question that I had that I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to answer and I would love to get your input in is what makes for a good foundation across domains when it comes to skill learning? Okay, the big question. The first thing that pops into my head we've already covered, which is like that initial spark, right? If Mm -hmm. you want to learn something, you're going to need some sort of motivation in that direction, some sort of interest. Ah, Then, uh, Sorry, let me try to hone in a little bit more. Um, What are the elements of learning any, any skill that are so foundational, that are independent of the person that I'm working with? How do we determine if they exist or don't exist? Because a question that I have for myself when it comes to learning acrobatics, learning juggling, Mm -hmm. learning any skill for that matter, of course, it's always the person that's part of the picture. The old, more traditional view is sort of the coach molds the three-year-old into the athlete. And Mm -hmm. either the person is lucky and they grow into the mold or they were genetically not fit and then they get cast out. But now we learn that actual skill learning can be vastly more efficient if we make it specific to the person in front of us, right? Then there are sort of, um, if I were to speak about non-specific basics, then I know there's some research speaking about how the average Olympian gold medalist practiced three to four different sports by the time they're 12 years old, uh, Mm 11.5 to 12. And that is almost a good requirement for a lot of highly chaotic sports like soccer or football or something. So I know... Like if I, as a parent, would want my kid to do well, regardless of for the Olympics or not, it's probably useful to let them explore three to four different things. Is there a similarity in, say, juggling or in handstands? Is, and if there uh, are things, okay. because every coach has these, I think, how do we determine with high accuracy that they're true and that they're not just figments of my mind and I'm very convinced of myself and the more I tell my students, the they, the more they'll believe in it. <laughs> okay, beautiful. So first of all, I do want to address the Olympian thing. I hope I don't lose track of the actual direction of the question here, but I can see the causation going in both directions there. So on the one hand, playing a few sports when you're young develops a lot of qualities and I totally support that. I don't mean to question it. And let's say you are genetically disposed to be athletic, or let's say your parents can afford to eventually help you become an Olympian, you are someone who's more likely to play a few sports. So uh-huh. I 100% buy the correlation, but I could mm-hmm. see it partially being explained by both of those directions. Does that make sense? Brilliant. Yeah, totally. It's something that I hadn't thought of, and I'm glad that you brought it up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't read the research myself, but I, you know, I could see either side of that being more explanatory. But Which then to is, actually get in, yeah, yeah, it's good because it shows that I'm asking the right person. I feel because exactly <laughs> that is the question, right? How are we really sure that I'm not just weeding out people 
by telling them that everyone has to be able to hold a two-minute chest-to-wall handstand before right. they're attempting one-arm handstands or something like it. Because it might be effective, but it might not be that there is a um, sort of a, a cause-effect relationship, but just a correlation. And the people who end up sticking to the two-minute hand, uh, to, to handstand practice are the people who are, even if they feel miserable, they'll keep going against the pain. And maybe they'll even be more likely to end up injured. Could there not be a more effective way? And how do we know? So the things that I personally tend to focus on as a coach, practitioner, thinker, uh, person who stumbles into ideas are like principles of individual practice, meaning um, there's no such thing as one perfect technique, make a different mistake, um, how to like different strategies for showing up consistently and frequency of practice and intensity and all these things. But I think what you're asking, and I don't want to avoid the question, so I hope what what you're asking is things more like uh, joint capacity, like degrees of freedom at an individual joint are something that will potentially set you up for any skill, whether it's handstands or a backflip. So in other words, if your ankle has more access to movement, then you could potentially learn a skill with that ankle that involves running or jumping or kicking or various things. And same thing, if your wrist has more degrees of freedom, then it could potentially throw a ball or learn a handstand. And it's that like potential I'm describing that I think is what you're calling a foundation for, for learning. Is that, am I right? I would, yes, I would love to um, go deeper exactly in that realm where I think there's a negative example of what a foundation is supposed to be or could be exactly with something as simple as range of motion. Because mm -hmm. it sounds very logical to say, well, if I want to squat a lot of weight, I should be able to squat the amount. Like I just need the range of motion, right? Um, so I could test my, my student and just say, give me a picture of your resting squat. And it sort of sucks. But then when I put them under the bar, it turns out the leverage is completely different. They might be able to squat way deeper than mm -hmm. what they did before. For a handstand, I've heard this quite a few times that 90 degrees of wrist flexion are desirable. Until there's plenty of people saying who are like top level hand balancers who say, I don't have 90 degrees of wrist flexion. I don't need it. It might be useful, but we don't know exactly. Like maybe actually having a little bit less stability, uh, less flexibility in my wrist means that I'll be more stable. Maybe it makes me be able to balance easier. So if I come from the wrong foundations, like if I select the wrong first principles mm -hmm. and say, first, all my joints need to be at the perfect um, uh, need to be able to express the perfect range of motion um, in, in active flexibility unloaded, then I might be spending time that not only is wasted, but might even make me worse at making progress later on. So yes, that is roughly what I'm asking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So honestly, that's part of the reason that I tend towards the principles of practice because they feel more universal to me. Like, Dealing can with you describe? The do you have specific principles like that that are actually just that I can check so off a list? What are those? Yeah, like like one I mentioned is make a different mistake. So mm -hmm. it's something that I learned in my own juggling practice, and I've used as a direct juggling lesson. But every time I teach it to someone, they apply it to a new discipline. So the mm -hmm. concept is when you find yourself 
inevitably making the same mistake over and over again. So in juggling, maybe the left hand doesn't throw high enough is like a classic mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Or in a handstand, I keep kicking up too far. In a backflip, I keep under-rotating. Try to make a different mistake. So instead of saying, this next one I'm going to do perfectly, you say, I'm just going to see if throw I have access to a mm-hmm. different mistake. Yeah. So throw away too high, under-kick, over-rotate, etc. And sometimes you might not be able to do that. You might still feel like I still keep making the same mistake. Maybe I need, you know, an outsider's perspective. Maybe I need some some help in the mm-hmm. skill. But most of the time I find people can find at least two mistakes. And once you've found two different mistakes, you mm-hmm. remind yourself that you have a little bit of control over the situation. Like it's mm-hmm. not inevitable that my left hand won't throw high enough. I can mm-hmm. throw it too low and I can throw it too high. Mm-hmm. And if I can do that, then I must be able to throw it somewhere in between those two, right? And mm-hmm. I call it like Goldilocksing. You can start to mm-hmm. find that that right point in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a principle that like anytime I've learned a new skill, that seems to come in handy at some point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of us listening, I'm just staring out into the distance. <laughs> <laughs> and, this is um, the considering portion of the conversation. Exactly. Trying to see how um, how that applies, but also how it answers um, the question of what are essential foundations. So that feels to me more like an attitude than uh, an objective foundation. And so far, that if I, it's almost something I have to find within myself, and that's cool because it it puts me in in the driver's seat of my practice. It's not someone else says you have to have this. It's instead the question. Can you think of this task in a different way? Not only that you think about it, but that you express yourself slightly differently. Good. Now let's say I'm um, I am trying to do a barbell snatch, uh, mm-hmm. snatch an Olympic lift, and um, I can think of doing different mistakes. There is some danger. I can decrease the danger by using a lower bar. Then doesn't apply so well anymore. But essentially what the good coach knows and sees is something like the bar path. And they'll pick it up, like fine details. Now I can say, oh, I can make five different mistakes. Like I throw the bar in front. I can sort of dip my head. I can like almost just do a deadlift. You know, I can keep thinking of mistakes, but they don't necessarily lead me in the right direction. I'll have more experiences. And it's more like probably when first learning a skill like the child you know maybe there's some benefit to just trying to make as many mistakes as you can but that might also be frustrating so where do you go next where do you go from there and that's i see how that's a really useful sort of point because if you feel stuck just trying a different path can at least get me moving Mm -hmm. so when you're describing the bar path in a snatch to me that's an example of a task analysis so you're trying to figure out Okay, I have myself, I have this thing I'm trying to learn. What do I need to know about this thing in order to do it? And Mm. I do want to kind of almost like caution myself, like acknowledge my own bias. You don't have to have a technical understanding of something to be really good at it. So Mm -hmm. like every pro athlete ever has gotten incredible at their skills, but some of them probably just worked really hard and never thought about the task that much. They were just like, Mm. I'm going to compete. I'm going to try to beat everyone at this sport. And they gradually got better and better. So it's not that you need to do a task analysis. But like you're pointing out, I think that's one of the most useful things a coach brings to the table. They have an understanding of the task from a variety of angles 
that mm. you know a beginner or even an expert might not appreciate or understand. So mm-hmm. you're describing maybe what I call the crux of a skill. Mm-hmm. So for instance, um, let's take a planche is where you like you're in a plank but with your feet off the floor. The crux of the skill, on average, I would say, is building the strength to lean your shoulders further forward in order to counterbalance your feet or your legs. Or it could be wrist flexion. (laughs) Well, so, but you could change your wrist position, your hand position, right? Uh But no matter what, you're not going to do a planche without leaning your shoulders forward because of physics, (laughs) right? So the crux of the skill tends to be leaning the shoulders forward. How do you know it's not core strength? I'm just so asking the strength, question that I know a lot yeah, of people yeah. will ask themselves at some point. <laughs> core strength is something that allows you to lean your shoulders further forward without falling over, right? So it's it's a piece of the puzzle, but ultimately you can basically measure a planche by the degree of lean of the shoulders, mm-hmm. and it could be coming from various muscles working together, and not everyone will contract exactly the same stuff, but mm-hmm. everyone will lean the shoulders further forward. Mm-hmm. Right. So in juggling, as a different example, consistent throws tend to be the crux. Like it's mm-hmm. not about making diving catches. It's mm-hmm. can I consistently make throws and, and see where they're going? Right. All right. Do you mind if I, I want to uh, interject a little bit and, and dig deeper? So I'm playing devil's advocate for a second, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it will mm-hmm. get us somewhere. For the juggling and throwing, it, it makes sense to me. Like the moment I can throw and then. I can throw higher and more, and I, I can't see that not working out. For the plunge, something that a lot of coaches will say is, you definitely have to protract. And for me, <laughs> following your rule currently is, like, I don't see a reason. I know that for myself as well. Like, my shoulder blades like to do whatever, just from uh, growing up playing soccer and pretty much not using my upper body in ways that would um, challenge myself in similar ways that the plunge demands. But that means I can lean forward quite well, in ways that other experienced coaches tell me wouldn't hold up at some later point when I want to get more advanced situations. So how can I, like, is there a way to predict that well if I'm thinking I want to learn a backflip or a backhand spring on aerial as a student? Mm-hmm. How do I know what, what are the baseline requirements or what's the best entry point and these are actually two different questions that would that would get me there <laughs> yeah so i'll make one comment on the planche and then i'd much rather dive into either the back handspring or the backflip the back tuck. cool on the planche you kind of hit on like a, a pet peeve of mine it's coaches basically giving you additional standards that aren't required to complete the task so <laughs> if your goal is to do a planche then you should be doing, it's like, it's a ladder, right? You have Mm. a a relatively clear direction. I have to get closer to being in this position or holding this shape. And then a coach comes along and says, you have to do it in this certain way. And that's a constraint, right? They're saying, don't train in positions where your shoulder blades come together. Mm. And in my experience, if you focus more of your attention on leaning forward and less of your attention on the shoulder blade position, you lean forward more effectively, and you advance your planche. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't reasons to train protraction. I've seen professional circus artists, though, hold full-on planches on stage with their shoulder blades coming together. Right, And you could say, I don't want to do it in that way, and that's fine, but that's kind of a personal choice. So as a mm. coach, I don't say, like, 
everyone has to do this movement in this way. Mm. So I see it as protraction is a u- that's like pushing the shoulder blades apart is a useful um, strength movement. It, it, the strength you have in protraction comes in handy, but it's in service of leaning the shoulders forward. Mm. Does that make sense? I really like how you are challenging what I think is the more traditional view, which is sort of along the lines of coach know best. There's perfect posture, Mm -hmm. like there's perfect form and going more along the lines of, well, let's look more precisely at what exactly it is that we want. And the moment we know what that is and we can measure some kind of progress towards it, then whatever the pathway that gets us there, the more we focus on getting closer to our goal, well, the more, by definition, closer we're getting to our goal, even if some of the the solutions might be less conventional. And I think there's a great strength in that, which I believe movements like soft acrobatics, like cultures like soft acrobatics, take great advantage of. But it's not soft acrobatics, it's just the thing that I tend to identify with. It's very similar how in b-boying, there have been these giant leaps in in skill coming with in the harshest training environments without equipment, without the sort of any of the things that you would think someone should have if they learn acrobatic skills. But right. they figure out pathways mostly or often in a very subjective way in where the individual might be really lucky and figuring it out. I think what didn't make click yet and what we're sort of getting to is often the individual who found a path that works for them ends up trying to convince everyone that that's the path everyone should take. (laughs) And what ends up being probably more accurate and helpful in our experience is actually I need to find my path. So I don't want the coach that tells me I've got the path for you. I want the coach who allows me to have a learning process that hones me in on learning how to get to the goal that I want. And over time, for example, what I find talking a lot to my students about is what is the aerial that you want? Well, mm-hmm. to be fair, I don't talk about it with them that much because there's way too much fun things that we could do <laughs> instead of wasting time on like being super precise and meticulous when we're still early in practice. But essentially, if I define my own aerial as saying, I essentially want my hips to be above my head and my legs to be relatively straight because I think it looks nice. Now we've got something that we can work with. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a perfect gymnastics aerial that's super overhead, super inverted that can look a little bit more like a tricking style capoeira aerial. And then someone could say, actually, I would like the emphasis of my aerial to be on the second leg, almost being like a kick, because I imagine myself more like I'm in a, in a Jackie Chan stunt team fight. And it's just what appeals to me. And suddenly then we've got a whole sort of uh, range of skill ladders that lead towards that aerial. And the skill ladders that lead towards the gymnastics aerial that you could perform on a beam are way different ones. Hell yeah. I think a way of um a way of describing that is when you think you have the answers, you make it the whole process much less interesting. And it tends to be coaches, which I am. <laughs> not putting mm-hmm. myself outside of this, but it tends to be <laughs> us coaches who think we have all the answers. And mm. it's, you know, normal people trying to learn things. And then on the other end, maybe researchers who have the questions about how we learn things. And to me, that's like, that's the most, much more interesting mindset. How can we keep asking and be curious and not think, all right, here's this perfectly constructed ladder. 
go climb it. Like you will mm. climb it or you will fail. And that's that's the whole story. Mm. So let's let's dig into an example that uh you you have deep experience with. I'll give you two choices. We can either go into back handspring or back. I love tuck. choices. Back handspring. <laughs> okay, first, why did you choose back handspring? Um I learned the backflip first. Um but it has less the route to learning it gave me less tools to then learn other things. Mm. The route towards improving my backhand spring, which was really crooked in the beginning and I didn't know how to make it straight, that that pathway was way more interesting. Plus, it's also just practical, practically speaking. Um, one of my students has been learning it entirely without equipment. Um, the softest surface probably being either grass or like the, the puzzle play mats that mm -hmm. are still pretty rough. <laughs> um, and in that regard, I think it's also just the the one that's more applicable for most people because once they can backhand spring safely, suddenly you backflip that far. If you can somewhat backflip, usually to really be able to do it consistently safely, you just need to invest so much time into doing it again and again and again and again that you could spend doing spending a little bit of time on backhand springs and then some on cartwheeling and some handstand and some rolls and you would probably just I think you most people end up being the happier person going down <laughs> that route but that's okay. just my my bias <laughs> I love it it's like why did you choose this because it makes people happy <laughs> <laughs> um, that would yeah. That would be an efficient answer. <laughs> no, it's I love that. So let me just describe the backhand spring and what I consider the traditional approach. And then to me, honestly, it just seems like it presents so many obstacles. So I want to hear how you deal with those obstacles. So awesome. backhand spring would be you're standing, you, let's say, jump or bend backwards and put your hands on the floor and then come back to your feet. So you've probably seen, someone listening has probably seen like in the Olympics or in uh, six-year-old gymnastics, people learning the skill where you have a coach spotting a young child and they kind of put their hand under their back. The child bends and jumps backwards uh, with the support of the hand, gets their hands down, and then their feet fly over the top and they land back on their feet. But you're talking about teaching this to someone without spotting, without equipment, an adult, like so many difficult constraints to deal with. So if I'm scared to leap backwards, where do I even start? Definitely don't just do it. <laughs> That's not usually Nike. not a good recipe when there's actual danger involved. When there's no mm -hmm. danger and there's just risk, if I try juggling, just doing it might be frustrating, but at least nothing bad is going to happen. Totally. Um, I think the first thing that for me was really important to understand when I um, began um, and was joining in uh, gymnastics kids certification. And I understood how so much of the syllabus of the progressions are based on either adults spotting the kids and giving little hands on sort of just teaching their bodies how it will is going to feel and or a lot of additional equipment that make falling mm -hmm. just super safe that means the two constraints well those come together um with adults essentially well of course uh, you know our joints our mass in general we're a lot heavier that means if we fall wrongly there's a lot more force that can go in, into any one point 
where we could uh, pretend or have a ragdoll of a really small person and a really big person and they have a breaking point on the ankle and the small um, person can just fall off a way higher height and still be fine just because there's less overall mass that is going to be applied at any one point. Um, so adults really have a, a higher risk. Um, our center of mass is higher. That means just through um, our kinetic potential, there's literally more destructive forces. Like a child that's falling onto their knees or their face is not going to be as bruised as an adult, literally just by our physical makeup. And we can change that. And then there are additional things coming to um, smaller bodies rotate faster in the air. Um, mm. Larger bodies don't rotate as quickly. Uh, so, of course, in a back tuck, we want to be small to rotate faster. But a child can be way smaller than a grown adult can be most of the times. So. <laughs> um, so with all of these differences, we really can't expect that our learning process would be very similar to how a child learns acrobatics. But in my experience, that's what has happened a lot because the gymnastic gyms already have the equipment and the environment. They've got times. They've got times when the kids are uh, in school or, or when like it's late evening and usually kids don't train anymore. The gym needs to make some money. So they offer some adult kids classes. So what happens next is they say, here's how you learn a backhand spring. And then, of course, they've got equipment that instead of sort of a small tube that someone could bend over backwards and then sort of roll over into their first spotted backhand spring, it's a bigger tube that a bigger person can roll over. Right. Only that we'll then find, actually, we're probably also not as flexible as we used to be. So there's a whole bunch of problems that come up. So what I like to do instead is looking at, well, I'm inspired by learning the skill. If there are going to be too many roadblocks on the way, I'm not going to learn it. One roadblock could be injury. So I really want to avoid that because it could be the, the definite roadblock. But something else could be, well, if I always have to go to the open gym that's only available at the same time when I've got date night, Mm -hmm. I'm also not going to learn the skill. So that's where for me within soft acrobatics, really, I was trying to look at, I love these skills. I, I'm, it's just practical for me to be able to practice anywhere. Um, I do make time for my training, but I felt also coming from parkour with hard surfaces, I felt connected to not needing anything extra. So <laughs> that was the very long wind up story of understanding why uh, gymnastics and acrobatic skills used to be taught a certain way. And why I think there is going to be a different way that there are already coaches out there for who are teaching acrobatics in a completely different way. And that is what I term soft acrobatics. But you'll also mm -hmm. find like if you look for microbatics or Zen archery or movement flow to a certain extent or like they're, they're looking for acrobatics for adults, I think it's going to be more uh, going to become more of a thing. I sort of feel like um, the question that you ask underneath, I didn't answer, but I also spoke for a long term, a long time. So help <laughs> me, help me be on track. <laughs> yeah. So first I'm just, I feel compelled to throw out a few names that if people are interested in the words you're saying, they might really enjoy looking up. Um, the I'm ones that come to my mind, feel free mm -hmm. to add to this list. Mm -hmm. You're, you have much deeper experience here, but Ido Portal, you already mentioned Joy Isabella Brown, Louis West and Tom Wexler come to my mind as just like beautiful examples of people who have really taken on the ideas that you're describing really mm. seriously for a long time as you have. And they just, the way they move on the ground and through the air has this kind of like flowing softness that you've been describing. Mm. Um, another one that I think is worth looking up is Neil Teisner. 
Um, I'm actually not mm. sure how to pronounce his name properly. Um, but he's got good resources both on his Instagram channel and on YouTube as well. And awesome. those are going to be helpful. Then there is Movement Flow, which is by Slava. I, I can't pronounce his last name. I think it's Golubov. I'm not sure. Um, if you send Movement me a link, we can we can share it. With yeah, him. that that would be nice. Um, that's just an entirely different style of um, of practicing acrobatics. And he's coming more from a yoga background. Uh, so he used to be a yoga practitioner. For me, I would say my style is very much influenced by parkour. And mm -hmm. my sort of early years of trying to figure out skills for myself, actually feeling like I'm not learning as quickly as my friends are, well, how could I do this better? Um, and then literally, I, I recommend looking for the hashtags contemporary dance in general, because you always mm -hmm. find the clips that are the most highest upvoted tend to have some acrobatic elements in it, or it's really <laughs> smooth, inspiring movement. Yeah. Um, the hashtag Floreo is really nice as well. Because it's essentially a sub-discipline of capoeira. So f f um, people pronounce it differently, but F-L-O-R-E-I-O, I think. Mm -hmm. um, that's nice because you see capoeiristas doing their thing. And it looks like soft acrobatics. Like if you just knew the term soft acrobatics and you point at it, you're like, yeah, this is it. Mm -hmm. But really, it's just soft acrobatics is trying to... For me, it's trying to break the boundaries apart where they're a hindrance while acknowledging that all the prior learning has been done by these breakdancers, b-boys, by the circus artists, Louis West being one of them, um, by the contemporary dancers, um, but also by the gymnasts who mm -hmm. were like trying to find better ways to teach. And um, yeah, so there, th that was a good, a good call. Awesome. Yeah, so, but I do still want to kind of hold both of us down to this hopefully interesting exploration of the back handspring. So yes. you laid out kind of, you, you described why it can be so hard for adults to learn these things, especially um, without a ton of support. But I do like, I know that you have taught yourself a lot of skills and I know that you've taught others. So I'll just like using myself as an example, I spent a year in circus school. I did learn a back tuck and I did not learn a back handspring. I got in safety lines, I had spotters and I could do it with a ton of assistance but I, I had no idea where my body was in space. I basically like closed my eyes, hoped for the best, and then sometimes I landed and sometimes I didn't. And I, would, mm. I never got close to what I would consider uh, learning a back handspring. So talk to me about you know, the person who has date night and so doesn't want to go to the, uh, <laughs> the late night classes and just wants to learn on their own, maybe on grass or mm. maybe on like a somewhat matted gym floor, but without mm -hmm. fancy equipment. Let's actually try to break down how someone can go about it practically. Wonderful. For me, understanding how to learn a skill is half uh, is paying half the rent. I'm not sure if that's an exclusively mm -hmm. German saying, <laughs> but it's sort of <laughs> it where once once you get to the point of um, understanding what the crux of the skill is, but also why I'm experiencing difficulties, then later when the difficulties arise, I won't be surprised. I will likely have a tool or two to get over it. Um, and that's why I'd like to start with the idea of blind space. Hmm. A lot of acrobatics that happen where we literally jump into a direction where we can see will be, it almost feels like a safety protecting mechanism by our um, by evolutionary biology, by our brain being there to say, you're not supposed to 
run blindly in the forest. So like try running when you close your eyes, it's incredibly hard for a reason. <laughs> try jumping backwards where you can see, it's going to be challenging for a reason. So the first thing I would like to um, get more aware and, and teach my students to become more aware of is um, what is a pathway in which we can approximate a back handspring without having any blind space? So where literally I can see where I'm going to go the entire time. And then if you can, if you imagine um, instead of trying to jump backwards and having to trust that either a mat is going to catch me or that I will sort of make it around or a hand will give me support. Instead, I would just look behind me on the floor, literally like just both feet on the ground. I'll probably squat down first, then always feel safer. Look behind me on the ground and place one arm behind myself. Mm -hmm. um, I'll do it in sort of an open way so I can imagine it feels like that open arching position that we're familiar with from the back handspring. But then the first thing I do is I just walk around my hand to the landing place that I would have landed more or less if I had done a back handspring. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't feel very exciting yet, but it got rid over the first huge boundary, which is how do I get started? From there on, we sort of did travel in a circle, right? There are similarities, but essentially I just walked around my hand. So the question is, what's the next piece that I can add in? And probably it would be some level of jump. Now, if I try to repeat the same thing, there's going to be another barrier. Because if I try to do the same thing and I just do one big leap over my hand, maybe some people can already imagine it. It's like sort of you're winding yourself up, jumping backwards. Your body weight is on, your, on one single hand for um, a short time. And then you're landing in the perfect spot that you wanted to land on. That's a big step up. Like there are a couple of rungs missing in my skill ladder, right? <laughs> right. So again, we would just look at what's the smaller version that I can currently do. That's all that I'm looking for within every single practice version where I'm trying to learn a skill that I can't do yet. What is the smallest version of the skill that is getting me a little bit closer from where I currently am to where I want to go? So instead of telling someone, do that big jump over your hand, I would literally just say, do the smallest jump you can. And then at least I have a jump that we can now introduce some scale to. Because I can say, if you were to jump, could you also, you know, right now we're maybe just doing a jump and we started facing with our belly button away from our hand. So we're in a squat, hand is behind our back, fingertips pointing towards our spine and my belly is facing away from my hand. Then I do the jump with a 180 turn. So now my belly button is just facing to the ground. I'm still, my feet landed in the exact same position, but mirrored. So I didn't travel. So the next question, why in the backhand spring I'm traveling. So how can I get a little bit closer to traveling, which is, can you do that jump and just... Um, hop over a, um, a tiny sheet of paper. Paper's good mm. because if I land on it, nothing bad is going to happen. But if I feel really confident, then I can say, maybe you can jump over a stacked tower of toilet paper. Maybe we start with one roll. One roll is not going to feel like much because <laughs> you can sort of just turn over. But if you've got two rolls of toilet paper, suddenly you're challenged to jump higher. Wait, if just you can to now clarify, add that, yeah. are you saying, when you say jump in this case, do you mean going from your feet to putting your hand down or from your hand to getting back to your feet? Oh, my apologies. Um, so in actually the easiest way that someone can follow this conversation is if they go on my Instagram channel, <laughs> all the dark blue tiles, I think there's uh, eight or nine posts in the series Road to Backhand Spring right now. Awesome. They can, and there's a, a highlight as well. They can just find the first one and then you have a really good visual reference as well. Um, what I meant was um, if I... 
uh, squat down and I place my hand behind myself. Now I'm in a tripod position, right? I have tr uh, three points touching the ground. Mm -hmm. So the jump for me is the hand stays on the ground. I lift both feet up and then land. Awesome. In between, I do a slight turn and that's sort of the jump for me. Um, so it's not a, a completely up in the air. We're actually just jumping our hip up and landing down while yep. we're still supporting our hand. So you're giving yourself so then, a target to get your feet over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay. Exactly. So really, the the we're currently at the bottom of the skill tree, right? We're just getting started. And we're seeing all the way up there is the golden backhand spring fruit that we want to get. Right. That's going to be a long pathway. My approach and process is always to find the low-hanging fruit that we can grab within a single session. And from there on, there will be points where we climb higher and we find the next low-hanging fruit and I'll be tired at some point. So actually jumps won't work anymore that well. So that's a good signal to stop. Coming back, I'll probably start a little bit lower at the level and you know just climb the same path that I've been already up. And then I might be able to pick that other fruit that is new. So it feels like every single session I'm making progress. But then I might come to the point where I've uh, collected all the fruit on one side of the tree. There, there's nothing there. Like a couple of branches are missing. What do I do? That's when we want to change the skill ladder, climb down all the way, or you know, jump over to the other ladder and take a different approach. And from there, in that manner, we could learn a backhand spring pretty much in our living room, uh, not even needing any crash mat. If you've got the time, if you've got the kind of you want to put in the effort of getting there. But in theory, there shouldn't be a single point where either fear or actual um, high risk multiplied with high danger comes into play in a way that it could hold me back. Yeah. I could really just measurably progress towards my goal without ever needing um, extra helping hands, without ever needing um, super soft foam pits until I get to my first backhand spring. I'm I'm feeling super inspired. Like I feel like this is a risk of hosting this podcast, but every time I talk to someone, I'm gonna right. want to learn <laughs> their practice. Um, but are you I doing one arm handstands yet? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, but like, no, I just I just spoke to Alec Blennis, and now I'm like, oh yeah, I gotta I gotta start training my cardio. <laughs> I'm gonna take oh, this on. Right. And now I'm like, I gotta go learn a back handspring. Um, <laughs> no, I'm I'm super inspired by this. And I came up while you were talking with another analogy for this forest mm -hmm. and the ladders and the the stairs we've talked about. Love In analogies. acro specifically, <laughs> it feels like it's a, a diving into a pool. So you mm -hmm. learn to dive in and it feels fun and safe and it's awesome and you, you get into the pool. But then it's like you look up and the next step is like a 20 meter diving board. And mm -hmm. you're like, how am I, how am I supposed to get up there? And it's the fear that you mentioned that comes along with it. It's not just that it feels like I'm not capable of that. It's that I'm, I know if I walk up there, I'll be terrified. And what you're Wonderful. describing is like, you don't need, there's no like, just do it. You're not like pushing people off a cliff and be like, go learn scary stuff. Just be scared and do it anyway. Because when there's real danger involved, that's not responsible as a coach. Like you need to actually mm -hmm. take care of people. And mm -hmm. what you're describing is this trust like you're providing hope i think that either someone can find it on their own or maybe they could use help from a coach but there's always something you can find where you can like grab a piece of fruit that's within your reach mm -hmm. exactly one of the things i feel that's why i don't feel like i have any 
claim over the things that I teach because I feel essentially all I did is I spend a little bit more time thinking about the pathways and there might be there will be dozens and hundreds of them that I just haven't thought about yet most of them I'm actually learning from my students and working with my students so it's not even that I have figured out the 10 best pathways to x it's just that I've spent enough time thinking about if I were to try to come up with a way of making a different mistake than the one that I'm getting stuck on what would that be? And what you find over time is that you can keep coming up with novel ways of challenging yourself that still get you a little bit closer to the goal. And that's, I think, the missing piece for me that I still want to mention to sort of give a more complete idea of how I work with my students. I get really precise about measuring progress. So that, for example, when we're uh, when I come back to the Olympic lift and lifting my weight overhead, mm -hmm. and I'm just looking for different mistakes then it's not specifically guiding me into any direction. But if I find that at some point I, I, I fail to make progress, then making different mistakes that also get me to lift slightly more weight are going to be helpful. Now, in Olympic lifting, actually, because we're dealing with such high loads, there's real danger involved, right? Um, and there's like additional uh, things like strength building is its entirely own component of Olympic lifting. And we need to be a bit more structured than that. We can't be as, as random as we could be in some skill learning practice, which might be beneficial. Um, so it's not a perfect comparison. But essentially, as long as I keep making different mistakes and I have some way of measuring that I'm getting closer to the thing that I want, then I know I have the directionality that will eventually get me there. So if people are um, learning for themselves, and I can even confidently say, like, uh, adding on to that after that, the service that I provide as a coach, they need to know that there are always different ways in which we can um, attempt to do the skill um, where within a single training session, we can learn something that we couldn't do before. That's my definition of grabbing the low-hanging fruit. You mm -hmm. know that you're getting it if you are being able to do something in the session that you failed to do in the previous session. And the, the key to that is being able to measure the progress accurately. So when I was speaking about stacking up toilet paper towers earlier, that is actually one way of measuring how well you can jump over or uh, jump your hips up uh, into a height that would later on be required for something like a backhand spring. And um, in that regard, for every single skill ladder that we do climb, we simply learn to have one to five different metrics to track of whether or not we're making progress. If I feel like I'm stuck, sometimes not changing the skill ladder is helpful, but it could be just changing the metric that I measure my progress with that will get me there. So I think everyone can figure that out on their own. In most skills, actually, probably what the coach is going to help with is being able to more quickly provide skill ladders that might more accurately help to get to the top. Oh, thank you for saying that. I think um, great coaches understand what can be accomplished without them. <laughs> and it's <laughs> most things, right? Maybe, Maybe everything. But like you said that ability to provide a ladder it's not giving someone a skill you can't just like impart a skill upon someone but you can invite them to try something that you've seen work for a lot of people or you've put a lot of thought into or supported by research you might have various reasons for presenting a ladder 
but it it enables the like student teacher relationship or however you want to think of it to to keep the the power in the student's hands and it's like now you mm-hmm. have this ladder you can use but you're still empowered to practice yourself in your own way mm-hmm. i feel that's such a nice um a nice circle that you've been drawing where we started um or at least one point that we covered was how uh, the phrase that I wrote down was what will allow me to learn in my own way. And mm-hmm. I feel like we're, we're sort of, you nicely managed to uh, circle back to that. At the end of the day, I want to feel better in my practice. I want my student to feel better in their practice. And for me, that's even a good marker for, am I doing the right things in many areas in my life? Like, does it feel a- appropriately I don't want to say good because it is it, like it doesn't have to be always fun, right? But mm-hmm. it should feel like I feel empowered to um, take steps to in the direction that I want to. That almost always feels really good. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the power of what you mentioned about low hanging fruits. Like people often look at people who have really serious practices or reach a high level of a skill, and ask like, how do you how do you stay so disciplined or motivated? How do you put the work in day in and day out. And I at least like to believe that it's not, you know, just the people who are best at smashing their head against the wall over and over again. At least for me, it's more like I stubbornly refuse to smash my head against the wall. So instead <laughs> I keep looking for like interesting little pieces of fruit to pick. And so it's mm. actually enjoyable, at least on some level, where if I'm going into a practice, I get to like keep looking for a new little tree, a new piece of fruit. And it's not just, I'm more dedicated and I can, I can keep striving and, and working the hardest and, and grit and all that. So I love that you brought that up. I also, if I may, I want, I want to be respectful of your time, but I feel like you laid out a beautiful um, like path full of hope for the back handspring or difficult skills like that. But I also want to kind of go in the opposite direction So I'm imagining, you know, if someone listening to this is really excited about a technical, difficult acrobatic skill, they're probably feeling like ready to go, (laughs) you know, feeling inspired. Maybe they're going to go grab some fruit. But what about someone who doesn't really care about a back handspring at all? Maybe they have no acrobatic experience. They're, let's say, a musician and they stumbled into this podcast, but they are interested in this concept of softness and the way you're describing kind of moving Mm. about the floor and through air and all that. Can you give some kind of like open invitation, maybe a task of some sort that someone can, can just like try out with uh, low danger, maybe low risk or maybe not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) I would love to do that. Um, After all, like the quality of movement is what inspired me to what always inspired me. When both when seeing Jackie Chan, but seeing the early parkour athletes, seeing some soccer athletes, it didn't matter so much what the sport was. The mm-hmm. quality that they were doing it with, that I felt really drawn to. Um, in that regard, I've also come to this sort of conclusion, explaining to myself what that quality is about. It's really just efficiency. And it's efficiency that in some way or another is visible. And it's efficiency not in terms of it's not necessarily what is the way that everyone should move in to fulfill the task because everyone has got a different base. Everyone has got different 
um, uh, different, a different skill set, different abilities. So some person might be the best football player ever by moving in a way that I can see is not doesn't feel that efficient to me, and they're still winning all the games. So they've figured out something. Um, I just want to preface that to move away from the perfect posture debate. Like there are definitely very functional ways that don't necessarily look <laughs> the way that I'm, I'm describing movement. So one mm -hmm. can be a successful athlete without that quality. But if someone is drawn to that quality, then for me understanding that efficiency, another way of describing efficiency, is just saying that all parts of the body are um, synergetically moving um, towards the same goal. Or a term that I often use is uniglobal intent. If I'm moving with uniglobal intent, then that means uniglobal is a single, um, all-encompassing um, uh, intention that can be perceived from the outside. So I'll get back to the task in a second. I'll want to move to a backflip for one moment because in a yeah. backflip, we've got this one clear arch that we have to travel in. It could even be more apparent in no hand cartwheel in an aerial. We know what an efficient aerial looks like because it's got this, well, giant arch that we can almost trace the foot or both feet are traveling through, that the entire body is traveling through. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, that is just the description of um, the most efficient way of getting my body to flip 360 degrees. That's where I can look at the foot, I can look at the head, I can look at the hand, I can look at the pinky finger of that athlete. I'll find that the intent of the flip is reflected in that tiniest part of his body. That's what uniglobal intent is. So now coming to our task, if someone wants to experience that kind of fluidity, that kind of efficiency in motion, I like to start with a very simple role. The role can start, I'm just trying to describe it so that it's easy to um, visualize as well if someone was literally to try to follow along. It would be starting lying on our back with our feet on the ground. That's usually a very safe way um, and it feels quite comfortable. Hands are already in front of me so that I'm imagining a basketball is dropping on my chest and I'm catching it as I'm lying on the ground. So they're mm -hmm. just sort of in ready position. Then from here, what I'll do is I'll um, slowly roll or sway the basketball towards my right side. And that will roll me on my side, the side of the shoulders. Both knees can fall to the right side as well. And that will get me to perform sort of a mini roll. Now I try to do the same thing back to the middle, back to the center. And I'll find that there's some harmony between me moving my, uh, the, my hands in between which the imaginary ball is and me moving my knees back into the center position, then traveling to the other side. Now, if I move in that path a little bit longer, my goal would be to, as I get to the peak of the roll, to uh, either edge, to come into a, um, a kneeling position. Now, if I manage to get from lying on my back into a kneeling position and slowly back onto the ground, I've got myself a very basic roll. Um, depending on the exact foot position, I call it a fisherman roll. And essentially from here, it's a super low danger um, task where 
if I practice it on a harder surface, I'll actually benefit because the surface gives me direct feedback of was this a harmonious motion or not? How do I know? Well, if I bump in any point, <laughs> I know that wasn't the most efficient way of doing this task. Like if I do this a lot, I'll bruise. Whereas the perfect roll is the one that has the least resistance at any point. It's almost like seeing uh, a bowling um, ball roll down a slope that just has a 0.001 degree tilt. And we can sort of very smoothly, gradually see the bowling ball roll forward. That's the kind of sensation that I like to feel in these rolls as well. And it tends to be one of the easiest ways of experiencing um, uniglobal intent, where you can literally look at a video of yourself and say, is my left hand helping me do the roll? And you, you can just look at it. And at some point, it will be, you'll see in the middle of the screen, sort of stuck. And it being stuck means I actually want to roll across from one side to the other. If any one part of my body is entirely stuck and it's not, for example, helping me push into the ground or aiding in any other way, if it's not a reach or a push, it's going to do something that's not useful. So there's sort of a mini, a mini uh, excursion to look at how we could start to develop um, that soft quality that I'm looking for in my soft aqua practice that I believe speaks of efficiency and that I believe makes a sustainable practice as well. Awesome. I think you you beautifully demonstrated there how you can take danger out of a situation, but keep some risk and some feedback where like, yeah, you might bump into the floor or yourself <laughs> and you might get a little bit stuck. I can see how for a lot of people you might get frustrated, right? There's There's plenty to succeed at. There's plenty of fruit, but there's also plenty of uh, of risk there and without the danger it can be so fun to <laughs> to confront both of those and to kind of get your hands dirty and play with them 100 percent, yeah and of course once we feel confident and competent then we can increase just something like speed or we start the role from a slightly higher center of mass point so either from a squat or from like a um, a half kneeling, half upright position, something like that. And then we can gradually introduce those qualities of, well, now there is slight danger, but the risk is lower because I'm more competent at the skill. Mm -hmm. uh, it less, it's less likely that something is going to go wrong. And then by manipulating these two variables, suddenly you find yourself doing like dive rolls and, you know, maybe not right away, but at least you're thinking about, well, there are so many challenges that just come from the single initial um, seed movement. <laughs> Nice. And I think you've demonstrated how there's uh, there's always, you know, another skill you could learn, but there's also always access to that softness and that flowy nature, regardless of the skill level. And that doesn't just mean for a beginner, like that goes in the other direction too. You know, you could you could be a high level gymnast and have a whole bunch of softness or not, you know, mm -hmm. and that that's really true at every level, which I think is one of the coolest things about this practice. Mm -hmm. Totally. So I think we could probably talk about any skill for, <laughs> for several hours. I'd like to leave this conversation here for now, but I have a feeling we'll be uh, sending plenty of WhatsApp messages back and forth, and maybe we'll sit down again uh, in front of this so-called audience and, and <laughs> dig into some more skills. From I there. think so too. Yeah, it's so interesting to just dig a little bit deeper into what are the underlying mechanisms that seem to apply to any kind of skill learning. Because one thing that you said that really stuck with me as well, um, just in the past hour, um, was how 
the coach really just helps the student to problem solve. And if skill learning isn't universal, well, problem solving is universal. Yeah. But and if problem solving is a kind of skill learning, then really learning out, learning how to, in general, learn backhand springs or in general learn juggling, must be helpful when it comes to learning how to live life successfully, <laughs> how to tackle other kind of problems that I can't even think of yet. But if I get better at problem solving, probably there will be some kind of transfer to the rest of my life. At least that's what I've been experiencing so far. <laughs> awesome. So I don't often ask like, where can people find you? I tend to think I'll put various links in the description and if people are interested, uh, they'll know how to find you. But I do want to ask like, if someone specifically is like, wow, I you helped me connect something or I really want to try this, but I'm not exactly sure how. And they're like, they want to message you and be like, I listened to the podcast and I have this question or... Um, I want to share something about it. What's what's the best place where someone where you'll actually like see the message and and get give them the time? Thank you so much for uh, for allowing me this space. Really appreciate it. Um, there are two different scenarios. Either someone really likes to um, dive into this flow level where they can just start tying different easier moves together, then they can find an, the first online course that I created. Essentially, putting what I've been doing for the past couple of years in Singapore in person together in a format that has like 13 different modules and you can either go through it through six weeks, but most people are more taking like 13 and more weeks. So there's <laughs> that whole thing there. And that's the most accessible way um, to learn from me. If someone wants to learn a higher level skill, then they can work one-on-one -on -one with me. And the best way to reach me is still my Instagram channel. I'm also putting a lot of effort into providing helpful information there. So at soft acro Aaron uh, with a double A, um, as in Aaron with a double A, <laughs> um, that will be a really good place to find me. Um, I also have a website, um, softacroaron.com, and then you find my contacts there. If you want to be in touch too, then we can chat. But yeah, honestly, I, I make a lot of effort to be approachable and for uh, to be available even on Instagram DM. Like if you're interested in movement and learning, you will always be able to chat. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely confirm that from firsthand experience. And just one last note I want to include. I was definitely drawn to your work from like visual feats of skill, right? Like that looks really <laughs> cool. I'm going to tap on that video, right? But what kind of kept me around is you're clearly extremely thoughtful about the process and like welcoming and inviting and you're always excited to have a conversation about it so i would definitely encourage people to you know invite aaron into one of those conversations thank you so much jeremy really really appreciate it this has been wonderful i'm looking forward to many uh, whatsapp voice memos to receive and send <laughs>